speaking to us. We thank you for this particular text, Romans chapter 12, Lord. We pray that you would allow this to be true of us. I pray that in the light or as a result of the mercies of God which have been bestowed upon us, would we present our bodies, each one of us, as a to you as a living and holy sacrifice. Help us to not be conformed to this world, help our minds not to be conformed to the world's way of thinking, but to, to be transformed and renewed daily by the word of God so that we, we would know what your will is for us, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So I pray now as we look to your word together, I pray that you would do this very thing, that you would conform our minds to the word of God, that we'd think biblical thoughts, we'd think your thoughts after you. So, Lord, I just pray that you would do that now here among us in each of our hearts. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it will come as no surprise to you all that along with every other day of the week, Sunday comes once a week. Each week there's only one Sunday. And each week unfolds just like the previous week and the week before that. And God has so designed our universe that on our planet's annual trip around the sun, every 24 hours our planet makes a complete 360 degree turn on its axis, allowing us to see the rising of the sun and the setting of the sun each and every day. And in God's perfect wisdom, he decreed that man would live in a regular pattern of seven days, or what we refer to as a week. You see, God created the world in six days and then rested on the seventh and then decreed that man would work for six days and then rest on the, Sabbath, on the seventh. When God set apart the sons of Israel as his particular people, as his elect children on the earth, he established that the final day of the week would be the day of rest for the people of Israel. And under the new covenant, God established that man would find his rest, not in a particular day, but in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament for the church, that is the new creation people of God, the pattern became that the redeemed community, the church, would gather on the first day of the week, not the last day, the first day of the week, which was the day that Christ was resurrected from the grave. And so the church gathers not on the last day of the week, but on the first day of the week. And we might add that the church gathers every first day of the week. Week after week, God has given us this routine. God has given us this weekly pattern. Every week, the week begins with the church gathering. And then the church scatters throughout the rest of the week and then gathers again the following Sunday. And while some of us may rush through our lives and really overcomplicate and overschedule our lives, there are still 24 hours in each and every day, seven days a week, this sort of fixed routine, this regular rhythm that God has put us in. One day to gather as a church family. This is the pattern that God has established for us until Christ returns or we face death to go be home with the Lord. And I'll admit that my usual mode is rushing, and we can kind of rush through life, or we can choose to take our time. And I never want our regular gathering of the church, what we do when we gather together, to feel rushed. On the one day that we have each week to be together, I don't want to rush that time. We should rather purpose to enjoy our time together and, and really purpose to enjoy the Word of God together. 
I see no advantage in rushing through God's word, both in terms of the amount of time we spend in God's word, but also in the amount of time we give to each passage of God's word. Or maybe we might say the pace at which we go through God's word. So while we could take sort of a flyover approach to the word of God, maybe noting the major mountain ranges, mountain ranges and the, the river valleys of scripture, it's my preference to learn as much as we can from his word. Really, really like wringing out as much truth as possible from each and every verse. In a way, like walking through a, vo- a forest, beauty is seen both in viewing sort of the breathtaking landscapes and also in admiring the intricacies of the leaf. We see beauty in both. And so in our study of God's word, we should not miss the forest for the trees, and nor should we miss the trees for the forest. All of it, all of God's word reveals God to us. And as we understand and trust in God's word and all of its breadth and depth, it elevates our worship of God. So the deeper we go in scripture, the greater our understanding of the truth, the higher we elevate in our worship. See, when we see God revealed in his perfect word, our response is to worship him. And thus we grow in our love for scripture and for his word. And this is how we can understand David's heart in Psalm 119 when he says, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. He says, the law of your mouth is better to me than a thousands of gold and silver pieces. He says, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. David loved the word of God because it presented, it brought God to him. And so maybe despite my personal propensity to move ahead quickly, there ought to be no rush in our handling and our time in God's word. Let's enjoy it all. And I begin this way this morning because... This morning we're drilling down into one particular verse. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Just that one verse. And in this one verse, I felt like there was too many just sort of latent biblical contours that we needed to trace out before we could move on to the next. So this morning we're just really introducing the book of 1 Thessalonians by considering really this epistle's inspired salutation. Verse 1 is really just a prescript to the entire letter, and it functions as an introduction to the letter. And so this morning, I'd like to introduce you to three things in this introduction. Three items that will build our context for understanding this book, and really for living as Christians together. And so this morning, I invite you to turn there to 1 Thessalonians, and we'll begin just by reading our verse. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1. The verse goes like this, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And I'm calling this sermon here today by the title Introductions, and I'd really like you, I'd like to introduce you to three things. First, I'd like you to meet the writers, then the readers, and then the greeting. The writers, the readers, and then the greeting. And before we consider each of these three categories, we should note that this inspired salutation or this inspired introduction to this letter follows a very natural, normal, typical pattern of letters in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Letters from this era usually began with a salutation that contained this three-part formula, stating who the writer was, then who it was addressed to, the readers, and followed by a greeting. 
And this formula was adhered to by Christians and non-Christians alike. And for example, I'd like you to see this, if you would, turn with me to the book of Acts. Back up to the book of Acts and look at chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 to see this form of letter or this form of salutation that's found here. Acts 15 Verse 23, here we have the elders and the apostles of the church in Jerusalem composing a letter, and note how it, be, how it begins. Verse 23, and when they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren, who are, the, who are elders, to the brethren who are in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. You see, there we have all three parts. And this is the standard form of salutations. Consider also Acts 23, Acts 23, verse 26. Acts 23, verse 26. Here we find a Roman commander addressing a Roman governor by the name of Felix. Acts 23, verse 26. And it says, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. That's that standard three-part formula. So here are these two examples in the Word of God in Acts that have that exact same template. The writers, the readers, followed by the greeting. And I think it just we must acknowledge on the front end that this is a good practice. I, I like this practice maybe better than ours because when we write a letter, we put our names at the bottom. But it seems logical to put our names at the top like they did back then. But anyway, this was the custom of the day. And Paul employed this custom as he took up his writing and as he wrote epistles. All At the beginning of all of Paul's 13 epistles, Paul began with this three-part salutation. However, each one of these three points of this salutation might be expanded according to Paul's desire. And when Paul does expand upon a section of salutation, he does so for a particular purpose, meeting the need of the moment or for that particular church. For example, consider with me the prescript to the epistle to the Romans. Turn to the book of Romans with me, just a couple pages to the right. Here we have this book of Romans, this giant treatise on God's work of salvation, especially in relation to Jew and Gentiles. And this is how Paul begins. Look at verse 1 of Romans. Paul, apostle of, a, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Notice he's expanding on the writer. Verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. That's all an expansion on that first part of the greeting, or the salutation. Verse 7. Here comes the readers. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, here's the greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Also look with me at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Just turn one book to the right. And as you'll recall, the, the book of 1 Corinthians is addressed to a sinful church that has lots of sinful problems. And so look how Paul addresses this body beginning in Verse 1, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sothenes, our brothers, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, 
grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Notice here that Paul is calling them saints, holy ones, those who are being sanctified, being made more like Christ each and every day. He's telling them in advance because he's about to call them to greater holiness throughout this book. And as a final example, maybe turn with me to the book of Galatians and consider how Paul opened up this letter to the, to the churches in the region of Galatia. Here, as you know, Paul is being criticized. His authority is under attack. He's being questioned over his authority. And so Paul doubles down, really, on the nature of his apostleship in this salutation. Look at verse 1 of Galatians. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Paul wanted it to be clear that he was called and set apart by God, not any man. And this will play a huge role in this particular book of Galatians. And I want, what I hope you to begin to note here is that for the Apostle Paul, the opening salutation really foreshadows what is to come in the letter, which really brings us back to our text, to 1 Thessalonians. If you just make your way a few pages to the right, back to 1 Thessalonians. And we see rather our simple introduction. It says this, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Really, Paul does not really elaborate on the beginning, on the writers or the greeting, but just a little bit on who he was writing to. He says, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't really elaborate much, especially compared to Romans or 1 Corinthians. And I think this is because there's a healthy relationship between the church and Paul. There was a healthy relationship, and that's why he didn't need to add anything else. He didn't need to tell them that he was an apostle. They knew who he was, and he knew their, he, they knew his heart for them. So let us consider this for first part. The, this is the first introduction, really, the writers. And that Paul doesn't develop each one of these writers anymore is just because the church is already familiar with these men. They already would have had warm feelings about each of these men. And as you saw last week, all three of these men were involved in establishing and planting that church in Thessalonica. And so the fact that all three names are listed does not suggest all three sort of co-authored this letter, that they all wrote it together. Throughout the letter, it's really made clear that Paul is the author. The Apostle Paul is the letter. For example, just look at chapter 2, verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 18. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. Here Paul is speaking in the first person, I. He does the same thing in chapter 3, verse 5. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. Here Paul is speaking about himself. And then again in 5.27, we see this final note. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read by all the brethren. Paul's saying, read this letter in your midst. So I say all that to say, Paul is clearly the, the author of this letter. But then we ask, well, why did he list these other names? Well, it seems that Paul probably noted his name first because he's the natural leader and he's the real author of the epistle. But it seems that Paul gladly associates himself with these close companions of his who administered to the Thessalonians because in a way they were a united front. They all believed and were telling the church the same things. They all agreed upon the subject matter. 
And just if we, for a moment, if we considered each of these men and the lives of each of these men, I think it would be helpful for us. For example, consider the Apostle Paul. I think we probably know him the best of these three. He's the converted Pharisee who was one time seeking to stamp out the church, kill Christians. He authorized the stoning of Stephen. He was zealous for the cause of Judaism until God changed his heart on the road to Damascus. And then God used Paul's innate zeal for the sake of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul acknowledged that by the grace of God, he outworked all of the other disciples, all of the other apostles. What about this character, Silvanus? I think we'd be safe to say we probably know the least about him. We talk about him the least of all. And in the book of Acts, Luke refers to this man as Silas, as we saw last week, which is probably his Latin. But Paul here prefers his Latin name, which is Silvanus. 1 Peter calls him a faithful brother. And he was a fellow missionary who planted churches on Paul's second missionary journey. He was the appointed letter carrier for the Jerusalem council. They noted Silvanus as a faithful leader among them and who could carry the letter. Later, it seems, based upon 1 Peter 5.12, that he was also commissioned by Peter to carry a letter for him. We also know that he was a gifted prophet. He was a gifted prophet and active in Paul's missionary work. And it's very likely that Silvanus was an older man, an older brother, and he was definitely considerably older than Timothy, who we should also consider. As you know, Timothy was Paul's most beloved, most beloved disciple, most devoted disciple. As you know, Paul wrote two letters to this young man. Uh, he calls him in those letters, my true child in the faith. He refers to him as my beloved son. And from what we know about Timothy, Timothy ministered in his hometown of Lystra and the surrounding areas. He ministered in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea. He ministered in Ephesus and in Corinth and likely even in Rome. In the book of Hebrews, we find an interesting note that Timothy had just been released from prison. And so this indicates that Timothy had suffered for the sake of the gospel, as we know. And Timothy was likely quite young, when he left with Paul that initial time from Philippi. And we know that from 1 Timothy 4.12. This is 15 years later, when Paul would still refer to him as a young man. He said, let no one despise your youth. So 15 years later, he's still considered young. So we might say that Timothy was very young when he initially left with Paul. Maybe, maybe even a teenager, we might say. And judging by Paul's epistles to Timothy, one gets the impression that Timothy was a, was a young man, but he was also somewhat reserved, somewhat timid. He appears to be very sincere and faithful, but at perhaps at times frightened by his opponents and their teaching. And, and knowing what we do about Timothy's personality, I'm always struck by 2 Timothy 4.5, which says this. Paul says to this young pastor, but you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You see, despite Timothy's age and his timid disposition, Paul tells him, you still need to be active in the work of evangelism, which just as an aside supports what is taught explicitly elsewhere in our Bibles, that evangelism is the obligation of all Christians, regardless of their gifting or disposition. Timothy did not have a gifting for it. And he did not have a disposition for it. But yet Paul still said, be active, do the work of evangelists. 
And some of Paul's greatest commendation for Timothy is found in the book of Philippians. Uh, Paul was preparing uh, the church to welcome Timothy, and he wrote these words to them in Philippians 2.19. He said, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, for I have no one else of a kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, but not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of Timothy's proven character, his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of a gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately. This is how Paul thought of this young man. I mean, what a commendation. And so whatever we may conclude about Timothy's age and his personality, he was a faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is really maybe the common thread between all three of these men. They were all faithful. The common thread is faithfulness. Paul is faithful as a bold apostle. Silvanus is faithful as sort of an older prophet, missionary, letter carrier. And Timothy as a young pastor. They were all faithful and God used them each mightily to spread the gospel throughout, really ultimately around the whole world. And reflecting on these three men, I think there's encouragement for us. I mean, really, no matter your background, no matter your age, no matter your skill set, no matter your gifting, You can be assured that God can use you where you are. He can use you. He desires you to be a fruitful and faithful vessel to help spread the gospel and build others up in the faith. So these were the three writers who ministered to this particular church in Thessalonica, which brings us to our second introduction. Really here, meet the readers. So the verse goes, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace to you and peace. So this letter was written to a church. And you say, oh, wow, that's very profound. (laughs) This is true. But wait up a minute. I don't want to assume that we all know what a church is. You see, based off my experience, it might be best if we assume that the average Christian doesn't know what a church is. See, about two months ago, my family was at a barbecue with some Christian friends. And that evening, there was a very sweet, sincere vocal Christian lady, older lady, who was trying to explain to me that what we were doing there as we ate our hot dogs and our burgers was that we were doing church. And I didn't quite know how to respond. I'm sure there was a glazed look in my eyes. Um, But that's a fairly regular experience for me. For example, about two weeks ago, I was having coffee with a group of guys my own age on a Thursday afternoon, a Bible study. And one of them asked me point blank if, if I thought it was a sin to miss church for this young man Um, had missed church for over a year at this point. And before I could really give an answer, one of the guys blurted out, well, this is a church. What we're doing right here at City Brew, this is is church. And and it's comments like these that inform my assumption that there's really a lot of confusion today about what a church is. I'm not sure we know what a church is often. And you see that the language we use about church often undermines, undermines the biblical definition of a church. We say things like, we are having a Bible study at the church. I mean, obviously this would suggest that the the church is a building. Or we say things like, what are you going to do after church today? This assumes that the church is an event. But a, a local church is neither a building and nor is an event. And by the way, I'm not necessarily trying to correct our Christian vocabulary here. I too speak of church in ways Sometimes that's less than helpful, I understand. Uh, This is just a part of our established nomenclature, and I think we have to accept that on some level. But nevertheless, I think sometimes we we catch ourselves and we say, wait, wait, the church is not a building. The church is a people. 
the church is a people, but I don't think that even goes far enough. I don't think that goes far enough. A local church is a people who gather for a particular purpose. A fundamental activity to a church is gathering. A church is a people who gather. And we know this based simply upon the New Testament word for church, this word church, this common word. You see, after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, if you would have mentioned the word church on the streets of Jerusalem or in Corinth, which is this word in the Greek, ekklesia, if you would have mentioned that word, people would have understood that you were referring to a gathering of people. That's what that word meant, just a gathering of people, and most likely a political gathering. That's what they would have thought you were referring to. This word, ekklesia, means simply that. It's an assembling, it's a gathering of people. And to see this with me, turn to Acts 19. I want to just note this to you. Turn with me to Acts 19 to see a unique usage of this word, church, or really two of them. But look with me, Acts 19 contains the account of Paul's missionary endeavor in the city of Ephesus. And towards the end of this chapter, the whole city is really thrown into an uproar because of the preaching of the gospel. And some of the leading Christians were dragged before the city officials, much like happened in Thessalonica. And we'll pick up the story in verse 35, Acts 19, verse 35. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, men of Ephesus, What man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? In other words, he's saying, who doesn't know that Ephesus is just a pagan city? Uh, Verse 36. So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius... And the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man. The courts are in session and the proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with these events today, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. So here we have this word assembly two times. Verse 39, if you want to do anything beyond this, he says, it shall be saddled in a lawful assembly. Verse 41, and after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. And this word that we read as assembly is the same word that is normally translated as church, ecclesia. And here in Acts 19, it clearly doesn't refer to a church as we know it. It refers to just an assembling of people. And my point is that the, that the very word church means assembly. It means gathering. It means a gathering of people. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament regularly gathers on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. That's the pattern in Scripture. So a local church is a, a gathering of people. And if there is no gathering, there is no church. If there is no gathering, there is no church. For this reason, I don't believe you can do church from home, although that's commonly discussed today, unless the church gathers in your home, which may be possible depending on the size of your home. A a local church is a people who gather. In order for a church to be a church, it has to be an assembling church. And we we might add that a church gathers together for particular things. We come together for particular things, for preaching, for singing, 
for praying, for fellowship, for the giving of gifts, for the ordinances, and, and such. And this truth, namely that the church is a group of Christians who regularly gather or regularly assemble, suggests a number of things. It suggests what that, what that young man said to me in City Brew is not true. Just a group of Christians in City Brew enjoying a Bible study together is not a church fundamentally. You could say other things. Could a person who never gathers with a church be a part of that church, be it considered a part of that church, although they never gather? I don't think so. Think about this. Can half a church gather at one time and then two hours later another half the church gather at another time? Is that what the gathering is? And it still be one church. Interesting question. Can a church gather in multiple locations? Can there be a downtown campus and a north campus and a west side campus and it still be a gathering, a church? Those are interesting questions. Not trying to answer those here and now, but I think they are interesting for us to think about in light of what a church is. Because fundamental to a church is the gathering. It's the flesh and blood coming together of real people in real time to worship coming together for encouragement, to, to really to cross-pollinate, to enjoy fellowship together. And so a church is a group of people who regularly gather. And Paul was writing to the gathering in Thessalonica. The church consisted really of a certain type of citizen there in Thessalonica. It was, it was those who had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Thessalonian Christians, we might say. It's not just an assembly of just any Thessalonians that he's writing to. He's writing to a particular assembly, those who assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is made clear by what Paul says next. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul is writing to a church that is made up of Thessalonians and a particular type of Thessalonians, those who are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that little preposition in here can have a lot of meetings, but here it means that they are united with God. They are united with the Father and they're united with the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They are in the Father and in Christ. They have a personal relationship with them. And Paul, I think, mentions their status as in God the Father to really differentiate this assembly from just any pagan old assembly. It's a particular assembly. It's one who are worshiping the Father. And Paul references the Lord Jesus Christ to differentiate this assembly from Jewish assemblies who obviously would not gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, rejecting Christ as their Messiah. So maybe in a long form, we might translate this section of verse 1 this way. Paul is writing to Christians who are in Thessalonica who regularly gather together for worship. That's who he's writing to. And why is this uh, important for us to note? I, I think the day and age that we're living in, particularly in this moment calls, us for, calls for us to understand and value the gathering of the church. We must understand it as an institution, as an activity that the Lord Jesus Christ has designed for our spiritual good. So we must understand what a church is. And this really brings us back to our text and really the final introduction from this first verse of First Thessalonians. It's really the greeting. I introduce you to this greeting. It's this, Paul's customary greeting. Grace to you and peace. As I alluded to earlier, Paul includes this greeting or an expanded form of it in all of his epistles, every time we find this. And as such, it's, it's in our regular reading of the Bible, we can really just brush over these words quickly. 
I think that's probably not normal practice, actually. I mean, to just move over quickly over these words. And as you know, familiarity breeds contempt. Um, so we should stop for a moment and cause, what does this greeting mean? What is Paul trying to communicate here with these words? Well, Paul intentionally used this customary greeting, or really altered it, from the standard greeting, which was just this word greetings, or karin in the Greek. It's just greetings. And he translated it to charis, charis, which just means grace. So he tweaked the standard greeting of the day to change the word to this word grace. And we've seen already some examples of other letters that just said that word greetings, but Paul changes it to the word grace. And he also asserted this word peace or, or shalom. And this seems to be a, a common Hebrew greeting. So in a way, Paul is taking from the Greek world and from the Hebrew world for the, in this greeting, but it's more than that as well. It's more than that. He, he's really deepening and spiritualizing both the concept of grace and peace. As one commentator has noted, Paul and Christians thereafter took these everyday words of greeting and transformed them into vehicles to convey the distinctive truths of the gospel. Think about that. Grace and peace, those two words as conveying the distinctive truths of the gospel. Perhaps really no word carries more central meaning to the Christian faith than the word grace. And we ask ourselves, well, what does grace mean? It's a common word. We use it all the time. What does grace mean? And in one word, we might define grace as favor. Favor. Favor from God. The source of the grace, as Paul often includes in his greeting, is God himself. It comes from God. Grace from God. Favor from God. And simply put, grace is favor from God. It's God's free, unmerited favor directed towards sinners like us. And in the New Testament, grace refers to God's free, unearned bestowment of salvation upon unworthy sinners who actually deserve condemnation. This is the idea of grace found in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. If, I know these are common verses, but I invite you to turn there with me to the book of Ephesians to see this well-known passage Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Look at there at verse 8. Some of our maybe most beloved verses in our Bibles. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves, is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Really, some truths are so profound, so glorious, that we just have to keep repeating them to ourselves. And this is one of them. You see, because of our rebellion against God, because of our sin against the holy God, we deserve his holy wrath. The Bible says there is no one righteous, not even one. No one righteousness. And as a consequence for our sin, God is restrained by his own character to punish sin. He must punish sin. The wages of sin is death. What we've earned for our sin is eternal death. We deserve the just consequence for our rebellion against God. But God, in his grace towards us, brought about salvation for us. When we were already condemned in our sin, God made his perfect son to be sin for us. You see, on the cross, Jesus took the punishment that we deserved. He died in our place. And by his death and resurrection, he saved us. All by his grace. We are saved entirely by God's grace. Entirely by God's free, unmerited favor. 
So we do not earn salvation in any capacity. Not even to the slightest degree do we merit our salvation. Therefore, Paul says, no one can boast. That is free grace. We might call this saving or justifying grace. That's what Ephesians 2.8.9 is referring to. And consider this way, grace is just this bestowment of a free gift upon us, wrought in salvation. But God's favor towards us, his grace towards us, is not only a one-time event. You see, God's favor towards us, his grace towards us continues. It It remains in an ongoing sense. To see this with me, turn to the book of Titus. Just a few pages to the right in your Bibles. Small book of Titus. And first... Look with me to chapter 3. After First and Second Timothy, then comes Titus, chapter 3. And here we see in this letter, justifying grace. Look at Titus 3, verse 4. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That is the new birth and whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. By his grace. This is justifying grace. But look at chapter 2. Chapter 2. Here Paul uses the word in a slightly different way. Chapter 2, verse 11. It says here, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So the important thing to note here is that here, grace instructs us today. It instructs us today to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. It instructs us today to live sensibly and righteously in the present age. We call this sanctifying grace. God's grace employed to make us more like Christ. This is God's favor given to us in a moment-by-moment basis to enable us to pursue Christ's likeness. This is God's favor really in the form of power or enablement or ability to help us overcome sin. And so here we have these two aspects of God's grace. In Titus, in the same book, we have justifying grace and sanctifying grace. And so to at least some degree, I think both aspects are contained in that greeting, grace to you and peace, when Paul says it. But the emphasis may most be on the sanctifying grace, grace to you. And in this greeting, Paul is wishing or praying that God's grace would flow to his readers. And notice that Paul concludes his letters with grace as well. Notice how Paul ends his letters. If you're still there in Titus, look at uh, first the beginning, verse 1-4. To Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace. Okay, there's that common greeting. Look how he ends also in verse, chapter 3, verse 15. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who are with us in the faith. Grace be with you all. He ends the letter with grace as well. And if we back up just a couple books to 1 Thessalonians, to chapter 5, verse 28, the end of our letter here, we find the same thing. Verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
So as you're probably aware, this epistle would have been read repeatedly in the midst of that congregation there in Thessalonica. And and Paul begins his letters by saying grace to you, and it, it seems to suggest that God's grace would come to them through that letter which was about to be read in their midst, as like in the reading, grace was coming them to them from the very word of God. And then he ends with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And this seems to suggest that as the congregation really left and quit reading, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would go with them throughout the rest of the week. And Pastor John Piper initially brought this to my attention, and I wanted to quote from him uh, just as he points this out so well. He says, At the beginning of his letter, with the phrase, Grace to you, Paul realizes that they are about to hear his word, his apostolic word, the authoritative word of God. So he says, in and through this hearing of the word of God, grace is coming to you. This letter is a channel of God's grace to you. Twice in Acts, the apostles' teaching was called the word of grace. On the other hand, Paul, as he comes to the end of this letter, he realizes that the listening church would soon not be reading anymore. They would be going out into a very hostile world. In a sense, the parchment would be rolled up and then treasured in someone's safe at their home until the next reading. He says, grace does not stay locked up with that scroll in the safe. It goes with you because Christ goes with you. And so Paul concludes, the Lord, or the grace be with you all. This, this is what it means, that the grace will be with you. The Lord will be graciously with you by his spirit, end quote. I think that's right. And so in and through this epistle, what we have is just a a stream of God's grace, his enablement coming towards us, his power to live a godly life. And although grace seems to be the prominent idea of this greeting, grace to you, we would be amiss if we didn't consider the peace aspect of well, this word peace, peace to us from God. And in the New Testament, the order, order is always the same. First grace, then peace. And it seems to suggest that without the grace, you cannot experience peace. The idea of peace seems to connect with that Hebrew idea of really shalom or peace and prosperity and well-being. We might, we might recall the peace with which Jesus left his disciples. In John 14:27, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be fearful. So we also, rec- this, is the, this is what he was referring to. Do not be afraid. I'm giving you peace. You do not need to be afraid like the rest of the world. We also recall that peace was mentioned by the Apostle Paul famously in Philippians 4 when he says, the peace of God, which comp- which transcends or surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And this peace is the peace that God gives to those who choose not to be anxious about anything, but instead by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let their requests be made known to God. Those people who do that experience this peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. And, and with the mention of peace, our minds are also drawn to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Romans chapter 5. And as we just close this morning, I want to end here. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, this well-known passage about the peace of God. It says this, verse 1. Therefore, 
having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our inheritance by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. So they have now have peace with God through Jesus Christ. I don't think we can underemphasize the importance of this note, that humans can have peace with a holy God despite all of their sin against him, that we have peace with God, peace with God the Father through Jesus Christ, all by his grace. And so really, as Paul's readers are about to embark on this letter, he reminds them of grace and peace ongoing grace, ongoing favor from God channeled to them through this letter and then ongoing peace. And really this is where we live. We live in the grace and peace of God. Everything that we have is grace. We have been saved by grace. We're continuing to grow by grace. And as a result of that saving grace, we have peace with God, peace with him. And so regardless of whatever trial he's ordained for us, we know we have this grace and peace from God. And so if you're just even here this morning and you do not know Christ, if you have not been born again, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, then you are not experiencing this peace, this peace with God. The Bible testifies that you are still under his wrath. You are at enmity with God. God's anger is pointed at you because of your sin and rebellion against him. And so let me just invite you to the grace of God and invite you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in him as the only possible means of escaping the wrath of God. You must trust in him and believe in him and then find peace with God. Apart from his grace, God's wrath will consume you. We know that with certainty. So with that, let's close our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for just even this little inspired introduction and what we can learn about you through it and learn about the faith, learn about who we are as a church. And I thank you even for these words, grace and peace. Lord, we thank you for the grace of God that we do not earn our salvation. We praise you that there's nothing that we did to make ourselves good enough for you to love us but rather we were already dead in our sins and you saved us. You poured out your love upon us. You caused us to come alive in Christ. And so we just rejoice in that and we thank you for the peace that we have with God. We thank you that we have peace in this world because we have peace with God. And so Lord, I just pray that you would bless these truths in our life and in our corporate congregation and in our, in our own minds. Would we just rejoice knowing that we have grace from God and peace with God. Lord, and I just pray for any who is here who doesn't know Christ, would you draw them to saving faith? In your grace, would you cause them to think about these things, really haunt them by the word of God and use your word to grant them eternal life. And we just pray these things together in Jesus' name, amen.